0: Good morning. My name's David. I am not the pastor here at Redeemer. That's how you usually started, isn't it, Chris? Chris is supposed to be in Indianapolis. He's not. A couple weeks ago, he said he might be going up there to do some networking uh, with some of the people who helped uh, get this church started, so he thought he might be gone, so he, he asked me if I would uh, sub-preach for him, and I said, yeah, and in the meantime, he decided to be there, and that's all right. Here we are, Romans. By common consent, Romans is the greatest of Paul's letters. In a minute, we'll read the text, and if you look in your gray Bible at the beginning of Romans, uh, the gray Bible kind of gives you a brief description, an introduction to uh, each of the books, each of, the, each of the, the writings. And in the Bible we have on our chairs, it says, Romans is the lengthiest and most systematically reasoned letter Paul has written. Uh, it's a deep letter. It's a, it's a, a letter of logic uh, and theology. He uses the word therefore 17 times in the letter. Now, therefore is a common phrase. Uh, if you've taken a philosophy class and studied Aristotle, uh, he's the guy that first developed what we call a syllogism. And this is where we take, some, we take one or more premises, that's true statements or statements we believe to be true, and we string them together and we come to a conclusion. Uh, for example, if we say... Um, all cats are meat eaters. Tigers are cats. Therefore, all tigers are meat eaters. And this is the logic that Paul probably learned as a child based on his background and where he grew up. And so not only was, was he a Pharisee of Pharisees, as he describes in Philippians, but he also had a, probably had a steep knowledge in, in Greek philosophy. And he applies all of this in Romans. The body of Romans is a sustained theological argument the theme is salvation by faith. But despite the fact that this sounds so deep and intricate, the writing style is very informal, very conversational. He uses a lot, of, a lot of questions, rhetorical questions. And he also, every once in a while, introduces a hypothetical questioner to help us understand what he's trying to say. Now, Romans is not a comprehensive doctrine of Christianity. It focuses on salvation by faith. But it does touch on a, on a couple of other themes. Biblical scholar Everett Harrison said this, Romans satisfies the craving of the human spirit for a comprehensive exposition of the great truths of salvation set out in a logical fashion, supported and illuminated by Old Testament Scripture. If we, if we look at the New Testament, we see that the, the, the writings fall into basically four categories. We have the Gospels. There's the book of Acts, the story of the, of the first century church, the epistles, so the letters, and, of course, Revelation, uh, the apop- apocalyptic writing. But Romans is an epistle, but it, but it doesn't fit the typical uh, pattern of all of the other epistles. Most of the other epistles, especially Paul's writings, are written to people he knows, written to churches he established or helped to establish or spent a lot of time at. Romans is not. Paul has never been to Rome, never been to the church of Rome. The other letters also highlight some specific issue or problem. Uh, First Corinthians, uh, the, the church was located in, I, I guess, what you would call, you know, ancient Las Vegas. Uh, a lot of uh, sexual sin. There were temples with, uh, with temple prostitutes, so that had to be dealt with. Galatians, Paul is dealing with the fact that the Jews in the area, in the church, were, were demanding that the Gentile Christians obey the, the Old Testament laws. And Philippians, for example, is, is a letter of joy and thanksgiving. But Romans is completely different. It has all of the elements of the other letters. Paul introduces himself, there's salutations, uh, there's the body of the work, there's the greetings at the end and the benediction and so forth, but it's got a completely different tone. It appears that Paul is setting the tone for his visit to Rome. He has never been there, but he has talked in various places in Scripture about his desire to go there. And In the introduction and the salutation, he spends a good deal of time kind of establishing his credentials. I, Paul, an apostle, a servant of Christ, I who have been given the gospel to spread to the rest of the world, that, that's who I am. It's almost as if um, he wants to lay out the gospel and, and give them kind of a heads up. Here's, here's what I'm going to tell you about. And oh, by the way, this gospel of Jesus Christ that I preached got most of it right from Jesus too, by the way, just saying. So he's sending this ahead of time so that they can be prepared to have questions, you know, if this was modern day, they'd shoot him an email if they had some questions. Uh, but he's preparing the way for his visit, so they can understand what he's, what he's going to say, which is probably wise. I know, Chris, you've never run in, run into any doctrinal issues with people, you know, as you as you've helped establish this church. Another thing that uh, he was probably doing, he mentions uh, later in the letter uh, to pray for him because he's headed for Judea. He sees trouble ahead. And his foresight turns out to be accurate because he's going to go to Judea and be arrested and, by the way, get a free ride to Rome on a prison ship. So that worked out well for him. But he's concerned that his his work may not continue as, as he had hoped. So it may be that in this letter, he wants to lay out a systematic and comprehensive understanding of of salvation so that his work can go on in written form without him. In fact, we believe that there were two versions of this letter, one that had all of the uh, salutations at the end to the people he knew at Rome to be sent to Rome, and another one without that stuff that was going to be circulated amongst the churches because he wanted to make sure that, that his gospel, the gospel, got out as it should be gotten out. So let's go ahead and stand, and let's look at this uh, passage of Romans, the first eight Our first 11 verses of Romans 8, page 808, on the Bible, on your pew, on your chair. Pew, we have pews. Excuse me. All right, beginning at the first verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray. Father God, as we, uh, as we delve into this passage of Your Word, uh, we just ask that our hearts would be open, our minds would be enlightened, uh, that You would uh, speak Your Word through me, Father. Uh, That your spirit would just uh, be in and through and all over everything that we do in the next few moments, Father, and uh, that we would see the plan that you have for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, when I'm not substitute preaching on a Sunday, uh, I'm a high school teacher. I teach high school social studies at Avon High School. I teach AP government and economics. And what that means is that uh, Monday through Friday, I spend most of my time locked in a room with 18-year-olds. So feel free to pray for me about that. <laughs> it is funny, <laughs> unless you're there, of course. <laughs> a couple of years ago, I had a student whose name was Zach. Now, Zach was a six foot two, blonde, handsome, smart, salutatorian of that class. Uh, one of the things I like about what I teach is since I teach AP government, I get, I get all of the top-level kids coming through my class because government is a required class in Indiana, so I, I get the cream of the crop, and, and Zach was certainly one of those. Um, Zach always had the toughest questions in class. Uh, whenever, whenever there was any subject, you can count. Zach's the guy that's going to have the hand up. Well, about January, so about halfway through the school year, Zach and I had known each other for four or five months, Zach comes to my door during the last period of the day, and that was my prep period, so I had no students, and he and... His friend, Ahmed Khan, uh, the most pleasant, respectful, polite kid I ever met in my life. He was a a Pakistani Muslim. And Zach's this tall and Ahmed's this tall and they're standing in my door. And they say, Mr. Ball, Mr. who has pizza down in the other room. You want a slice of pizza? And I had to ask, well, what kind of pizza? And they thought that was a stupid question because... All high school students, college students, and teachers never refuse free pizza. It doesn't matter what kind of pizza it is, right? So well, Zach says, why are you asking? Well, at the time, my wife and I, we were on a, a fast where we were not eating meat or sweets. This is kind of one of our common fasts when we're doing something spiritual. No meat, no sweets. It's very poetic. Uh, and so I had to ask because I, I didn't want He said, well, they have sausage and pepperoni. I go, well, I think I'll pass. And, of course, Zach, who asked questions about everything why don't you want a piece of pizza with pepper? When I explained to him that, well, I was, I was doing a fast. And it, it appeared to me, I came to learn that Zach had no spiritual background whatsoever. I mean, he must have been raised in the most secular household in Indiana because he had no idea what a fast was or, or why. He goes, well, you're not eating certain foods. Why? And, of course, Ahmed next to him, our Muslim friend, knew everything about fasting. So all the time I'm explaining fasting, you know, Ahmed's like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's got it. You know, it's nothing like having a Muslim have your back on spiritual matters. It's a good thing. (laughs) So I'm explaining to him that fasting is denying the physical so that we can focus on the spiritual. You know, Ahmed nodding his head. Well, thereafter, Zach started coming to my room about once a week, right at the end of the day. And we would start a question and answer period for usually an hour. After school when I was ready to go home, but I was willing to stay he had questions about everything because he had been asking some fellow students who were Christians these questions and he hadn't been getting answers to them So we had got into this pattern. My favorite one was the day before spring break the day of spring break I've got my desk cleared. I'm ready to go. We're getting out of here Here comes zach Two hours of questions. I was more than happy to answer my point is Zach would appreciate what Paul has done here. If you read Acts, you find that when Paul traveled, he would, go to a tr- he would go to a town, and the first place he would go would be the synagogue, because they would have the background in the Old Testament, so when he explained that Christ was the Messiah, that he was the fulfillment of what had been told before, they would understand it. And Luke, the author of Acts, always describes it like this, he reasoned with them. He proved to them that Jesus was the Christ. So that's Paul's style. And that fits in exactly with the kind of thinking Zach would have. Because if Zach looks at, at this passage that we just read, which contains a lot of Christianese when you think about it, you know, he'd be asking, well, who was condemned? Why were they condemned? Who's, who's doing the condemning? Am I somebody who is condemned? What is this law of the Spirit and law of sin and death? How, how does all of that work? How could law do anything isn't law an inanimate object what is this requirement of the law so if we had to sit down with zach he would understand paul's reasoning but if we were going to do that we'd have to start with this this third word in, in verse one therefore what do you typically do if you sit, you're sitting down to read scripture and you get a there is therefore i always flip back All right kim kim's giving me the flip back motion Right, Because he is telling me something that is based on something he just said. Okay, Well, with this particular therefore, we cannot just flip back to the previous page. Okay, If therefores were hurricanes, this would be a category four therefore. This is a big therefore. This takes us all the way back to chapters 3 through 5 where Paul is carrying forward a point. So we're going to do that. But before we can go back to chapters 3 through 5... We first have to look at what Paul says in chapters 1 and 2 about the state of mankind. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to flip back there. We're going to do some paraphrasing of what Paul says. We're going to pick out some very specific verses that introduce and conclude some major thoughts. And magically, in a few short minutes, we're going to try to get the crux of the argument that Paul has made for the first eight chapters. And we have to do this all in an efficient fashion because IU plays at 4 o'clock. So we've got to make sure, okay? Now, while we do this, we have to be very careful because we have to make sure we don't take things out of context. We have to make sure we don't, you know, misplace any meaning as as we do this. So are, are you with me? You ready? There's two nuts. Thank you, Andrew. Flip back to chapter 1, uh, a couple pages back. We're going to start at verse 18 because what Paul does is he starts by establishing the current state of mankind. In chapter 1, verse 18, he begins describing unrighteous men, ungodly men, a description of men who do not honor God. In verse 18, he says, they suppress the truth. In verse 21, they do not honor God or give them thanks. In verse 22, they are worshipers of images of man and beast. Verse 28, they do not see fit. To acknowledge God. And then interwoven in that, in verses 24, 26, and 28, Paul says that God gave them over. And this is an expression he's used in other letters. And we're not exactly sure what exactly that means, but the most likely thing it means is is in the negative, that since these men have willfully rejected God, God has simply removed his hands from their lives and has allowed the ugly byproduct of the human existence just to manifest themselves. Now, as he's doing this, it becomes clear that he is describing Gentiles. He's using uh, you know, the, the description of worshiping images uh, are not characteristic of, of the Jews and the removal of God's involvement from lives. And what I want you to picture as we go forward is Let's picture Paul actually reading this letter to the Romans and standing next to Paul is a, is a first century Jew who is maybe for the first time being exposed to the gospel. And our first century Jewish friend has in his hand the law. And Paul is condemning these Gentiles. And our Jewish friend is going, yeah, that's right. That's what they're doing. They're worshiping idols. Yeah, they're not honoring God. He might even have his hand around Paul's shoulder going, yeah, we got it's Me and you, Paul, we're the, we're the chosen people of God. You know, we've got the law. We've, we've, been, we've been loyal through captivity and, and, and slavery and everything else. So, yeah, you go, you go get them. And then we get to chapter 2, verse 1, where Paul says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And, and our Jewish friend becomes a, a little concerned. This sounds a bit like Paul's talking about him. And we go on in verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Hmm. More concern. Not the hearers of the law, but the doers. Does that mean even the Gentiles? Verses 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. God has put the law on our hearts. We don't need the written law. Our Jewish friend is vexed. He is very vexed. We go down to verse 17. And Paul employs some razor-sharp irony as he begins one of these sections of rhetorical questions. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, and you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You boast in the law, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Snap. Snap. Okay, the snap did not get translated in the English version, but I'm pretty sure it was in the original Greek. Twofold surprise for our Jewish friend. First, Gentiles can be as, quote, unquote, righteous as Jews. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. In verse 26, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision. Second, being a Jew does not exempt one from condemnation. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. We move on to to chapter 3, and this is a verse many of us are familiar with. 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the first point is, none of us are exempt from being condemned by sin. And if you've ever had spent any time uh, speaking with anybody spiritually, this is usually where things go kind of bad. I mean, you can talk to them about heaven and the teaching of Jesus and, you know, the golden rule, and if you have two coats, give your brother one coat. And they're, they're right with you the whole way. And, but then when you get to the sin thing, because isn't that where it all happens if if we do not face our own sin we don't need a savior that's where it kind of went bad for zach and me i forget what the conversation was he comes into my room one afternoon as he always did and i think he started off with the uh, question of uh if there is a god and god is so good why is there evil in the world you ever have that one that's a good one that'll take you an hour or two you know so i'm like getting on my phone jane zach stop by it's gonna be a while so we start walking through, you know, God's plan for mankind, creation, the garden. He's got all kinds of questions. Do you really believe there was an Adam and Eve? I mean, there's a question for everything from Zach. And we get to the fall and we get to our sinful nature. And, you know, got to, he had to ask the question, you know, I'm a good guy. You know, I, did you ever notice that there's really basically uh, three responses there? There's the philosophical answer, the philosophical objection. I'm basically a good guy. There's the economic objection. I do more good things than bad things, so I should be good when I get before God, right? And then there's the grading on a curve one. That's my favorite one because the curve is always set by Hitler, Stalin, Mao Tung, and Pol Pot, right, which, which all makes us look pretty good. The other thing we want to see here is that Paul is not giving us a, a uh, description of how you and I come to Christ. He's he's giving us a, a bigger picture of how the kingdom of heaven and earth in fact He only uses the word repentance once in this whole letter, but he uses the word faith 40 times Salvation by faith is where we're headed. So let's go down to 321 Because so far it's kind of a bleak picture so far He's just demonstrated that none of us By the law with the law in our hearts with the law as it was given to moses is going to survive But now suddenly, kind of, in verse 21 of chapter 3, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Wow, that's beautiful. From the time of Moses to the time of Christ, the Jewish people had two things. They had the law and they had the promise. And over that period of time, the law Seemed to be the, where the emphasis was. So by the time we get to the time of Christ, it was the law, the law, the law. The Pharisees had taken the law to an extreme that was uh, unheard of. Did you ever notice that in uh, the Gospels when Christ heals somebody, it's almost always on the Sabbath? Because that would irritate the Pharisees. I think he got up on Saturday morning and said, yep, time to heal people, irritate the ph- Pharisees. Because that's what happened. My favorite story is the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. The Pool of Bethesda, we believe, was down not too far from the temple. And in this description in John 5, we find out that John tells us specifically this guy was a paralytic for 38 years. So Jesus heals him. Of course, it's the Sabbath. And he's delighted about being healed. And he goes to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, he's doing two things. Number one, he got healed on the Sabbath, number two, he's carrying his mat. It seems pretty obvious that these Pharisees would know who this guy was. He's been at this pool for thirty-eight years, and so they see the guy healed, and they don't first thing think, "Oh, what a miracle!" They go, "Hey, dude, put down the bed." I mean, what could they possibly be thinking, and, and what must their view of God be if they think this is a terrible thing? They think God's sitting up in heaven, seeing this man get healed. They go, oh, "Isn't that oh, he picked up the mat." why did he go and do that? Really? And Paul is making that this point here, that it is not the law. Chapter two, verse 20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. We can't possibly do it since through the law comes the knowledge of, of, of sin. The law has a place. The place is to point out that we are in need of a Savior. After this lengthy discussion of the depraved state of man, including application to both Jews and Gentiles, and after a definition of the role of the law, all of a sudden, not the law. It's by faith. But our Jewish friend has questions. Look down at verse 27, and what I want you to do here is again imagine our Jewish friend asking questions. And and picture him in, in a little bit of a state of anxiety. Because he's a part of this culture, he's a part of this Jewish culture where it was the law, it was the law, it was the law. We are the chosen people. The Gentiles are 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 outside of the favor of God. And Paul has just said, "It's not the law. It's by faith in Christ. It's not for just Jews. It's for Gentiles." I've got questions. Our Jewish friend says, "Well, then what becomes of our boasting?" And a picture Paul, just calm. It is excluded. Well, what, what kind of law? By what law? Law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Is, is God not only the God of the Jews? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also, says Paul? Yes, Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Well, well, do we then overthrow the law? No. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Two important points at this point. Justification is not by works. Justification is by faith. And it is for both the Jew and the Gentile. Now, he introduces this whole idea in chapter 3. Move over to chapter 5, because after some discussion about Abraham and his role in in supporting this idea of faith, and it's the promise and not the law that makes a difference, chapter 5, first two verses. Therefore, another therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him... We have also obtained access by faith into this grace. And if you have your own Bible and you have a pencil and you don't mind writing your Bible, in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In which we stand. Now, let's go back to our text. Chapter 8, verse 1. Because now we have the pieces to the puzzle to understand this culminating statement that Paul is making. There is therefore now, today, now, not in the future, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has, past tense, it's done, set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done, past tense, accomplished what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned, past tense, done deal, sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled on us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. We stand right now, no matter what our actions are, justified before god saved by faith in christ because of jesus i am now free i am free from the law of sin and death and stand righteous before a holy god it'd be nice if i stopped right there right there's a but there's always a but when there's good news we stand justified and righteous before God. But we have a problem. I live here and now. I'm going to need a meal later to sustain my body. I'm going to have to go to work tomorrow to earn money to take care of my family. I've got to raise children. I've got to take care of a wife. I've got to get through this life. I still have struggles. My standing before God is that I am righteous. But my current state is one of getting through life, of moving through life and through a process of sanctification. We live, we Christians, live in a tension between the already and the not yet. We are already saved. We already stand righteous. But our current state is that we're not yet there. We are not perfected. That won't happen until Christ comes back again. We have a number of athletes. Have you ever been in the zone? Do you know what I'm talking about? Being in the zone. It's, it's been an interesting year with the uh, the Hoosiers. Right? Started off the the year number one in the nation. Went well. And the Butler Bulldogs came along and disrupted that for a little while. Then we worked our way back to number one. Had the mishap at Illinois. Didn't hurt us. Stayed number one. Then there was the Minnesota Ohio State things. Okay. On January 12th, IU played Minnesota here at Assembly Hall. I didn't go to the game, didn't see the game. Uh, my sons and I were helping with a rock climbing t- competition in Indy. But after the game, some of our friends who had been at the game come up, came up to the rock climbing competition. And we talked to one of them, and uh, he had student tickets. And this was his game to have the good seats. Isn't that how it works, right? If you get a set of student tickets, you move; they move you around. And he said, the first half of that game, They played like a number one team. They were in the zone. You know what I'm talking about. Let me give you another example. Last week on Sunday, there was an epic battle. The east side CG, (laughs) led by Sheldon and Danny Dance, took on the south side CG. I got some nods over here. In a vicious game of laser light tag. There's some dispute, Ryan, as to who the victors were, but it was a good day of fellowship. Now, prior to the actual event, they have all of these games and stuff at Laser Light, and so while we were waiting, we were playing some of those games. I made the mistake of playing one of those dance deals where you nobody over the age of thirty should ever attempt that, but it's quite embarrassing. And then my son Brian and um, Stephen Hopkins got together, and they were going to play a game of Guitar Hero. Head to head, right? Now, before I tell you about the Guitar Hero, let me tell you about the first round of laser tag, okay? Uh, we played the first round, south side CG, by a few points, one. But afterward, you get to look at the scoreboard. And I'm looking at the scoreboard, and at the top of our team is, is Stephen. And I was like near the bottom. Uh, and I don't like being near the bottom. So I wanted to find out what he did. Now, I would describe Stephen basically as mild-mannered, very intellectual articulate, very witty, okay? But if I'm told I'm going into combat, Stephen's not on my short list. <laughs> but he's on the top of the laser light thing. And I'm like, so I go up to Stephen. And I go, Stephen, well, you know, like, dude, what, what, what was your strategy? And he looks me right in the eye and with a deadpan face, says, have no mercy on the women and children. Chris I you know, Okay. Anyway, before all of that, Brian lines up a guitar hero, Steven lines up guitar hero. They start the game, I you know, I'm I'm too old to understand all of this, but they're getting ready to play and Brian on his side there's they're about to select the uh, the level, the difficulty level. Brian clicks down to to moderate and he looks over. And Stephen just straight ahead do 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 right past hard, right to expert. Now I can't see Brian's face, but he's been my son for 18 years and I'm standing behind him and I can see his body language. He kind of looks over and he goes down to expert and I can't see it, but I'm sure there's a bead of sweat on his forehead. Okay. So the game starts. Now you guys all know guitar here, right? The notes. I mean, I have never seen this notes come so fast before in my life. And Brian's trying to keep up and doing a good job. And Stephen is just over here, just hitting every note, just boom, 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 boom. I mean, we're in awe. I mean, we're all just going, does he missed anything? So, I mean, in the zone. As I look back on my life, I can think of maybe three times where I was in the zone spiritually. Where I'm in the Word, not only just reading the Word daily, but digging in, studying day after day, week after week, month after month. My prayer life is right there. I'm in communion with the Lord. I am regularly taking time, set aside by myself, praying. I'm serving in my church. You know, I'm just really spiritually there. But even in those times, still not the the husband I should be. Still not the father I should be not the man that God would want me to be because I can't do it. In fact, Paul even expresses this. I mean, we're talking about Paul. If you look over at chapter 7, you don't necessarily have to flip there, but verse 15, Paul says this. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, he's still talking about the law here, but but think about this. Paul is writing 25 years after he became a Christian. And he became a Christian when Jesus himself, in an audible voice, stopped him on the road to Damascus. Here is Paul who has established how many churches, who has been through how many traumas. He's been stoned. He's been jailed. He's been released from jail by a miraculous earthquake. And Paul can't do the things that he wants to do, that he knows he should do, that he knows the Lord wants us to do. Our response to the grace that we have been given is a life of of stewardship. Paul says elsewhere, our lives are not our own. Paul tells us that they were bought with a price. Now, we are no longer under the law, but we are still accountable. What are we to do? In in this passage in in Romans 8, Paul tells us that we are to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, by not setting our minds on things of the flesh, but on things of the Spirit. You know, Paul was 2,000 years ahead of his time as far as being a psychologist. Uh, I've gone through several phases in my life where where I've I've had a hobby that's, that's been a passion for me. In the 1990s, it was golf. If you've never taken up golf, don't do it. It's a nasty game. Nasty. Don't do it. In the 2000s, my wife and I were involved in competitive pistol shooting. You'll have to get over it. <laughs> my current passion with my sons is rock climbing. And in each one of those passions, as I have pursued them to try to be the best I could at them, it always came back to one thing, your mind. It always comes back to do you believe you can do it? If you don't believe you can get up that that wall climbing, you can't do it. And Paul is telling us the same thing. Where the mind is set, that is where you will go. And and we're being told here, set our minds on the things of the Spirit. How do we do this? Paul has already told us. We cannot do what God wants us to do on our own. Only by the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God can we do this. Paul finishes this passage with a description of those of us who have received this gift of grace by faith and what our ultimate fate will be. Now, when I read this ending part, when we read through the Scripture the first time, I emphasized the if. I did that on purpose because it would appear that Paul is raising doubt if you have the Spirit. But in the Greek, the construction here presupposes that that is true. And I'm going to finish by reading this passage to you as the intention of Paul is. And keep in mind that he's not only saying this to the Romans of the first century. He's saying this to you, the follower of Jesus Christ at Redeemer Community Church today. He says this to you, to us. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. The spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him, but Christ is in you. So although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Because of Jesus, I stand righteous before God. I stand secure and settled in my salvation. I am no longer a slave to the law, and I will be raised again with him. Because of Jesus, I am free.